This insight looks at the ongoing tussle over the development of the waterfronts in our main cities. Auckland is belatedly trying to revive its waterfront. Wellington has already done a lot of harbourside development, but is bogged down in argument about how to finish it off. Both cities believe their waterfronts can become a kind of urban park, as important to the soul of the city as the domain or the botanical gardens. What they can't agree on is the best way to go about it. Eric Fickberg takes a look at what's going on. The harbour in New Zealand's harbour capital laps only metres away from multi-storey buildings that form the heart of the city. On a fine day, office staff from those buildings go there to enjoy their lunch. Auckland's waterfront is more disjointed and parts are far harder to access. One section is cut off behind a notorious red fence and others lie in the shadow of widely disliked buildings. Well-developed waterfronts, enthusiasts point to Cape Town and Vancouver, can provide a vital and fun part of a city, can provide a soul. But neither Auckland nor Wellington's waterfront developments have glided smoothly towards that goal. Instead, there have been years of argument and accusation. Does it matter? What importance should be put on integrating the sea and the coastline to our cities? Raywin Peart, an activist from the Environmental Defence Society, gives an answer. New Zealanders are really passionate about the coast. I think it's, it's a, a really integral part of living in New Zealand and who we are. But we just haven't reflected that importance in the way we manage it. So it's, it's like it's a mismatch that we need to rectify before it's too late. Coastal cities were handed the chance to revive their waterfronts on a plate, thanks to technical progress which farewelled a bygone era. Shipping became more efficient, the space needed to service it more compact, leaving many one-time working wharves silent and unused. The city authorities in Wellington decided more than 20 years ago to turn them from worksite into playground, housing and shops. Wellington's Mayor, Kerry Prendergast. Wellington's waterfront is stunning and I think that it's an evolving place and it's somewhere where we need people to be able to recreate, be able to work, to be able to visit and shop. Um, They should be able to do anything there and they should be able to live there. It should meet the needs of all of those communities. Auckland's waterfront has been developed in fits and starts over more than 30 years. The latest burst of activity was announced with a flurry two weeks ago by the Mayor of Auckland, John Banks. I'm here with the Chairman of the ARC, Mike Lee, to announce the design competition for the proposal here on Queen's Wharf beyond these red fences. And how important is it? It's very important that we consult with the public. It's very important that everyone has a say, and that's the proposal today. This was the Auckland Authority's response to the call by the Prime Minister to make Queen's Wharf party central for the 2011 Rugby World Cup. It's a design competition open to the public. But with the Rugby World Cup just over the horizon, Mr Banks and his councillors have very little time on their hands. We need to get on our skates because we take possession of the wharf from the ports after the first quarter next year, the end of March. Uh, then we'll really only have about 12 to 15 months to complete the build because it is important and the government has told us that they believe it should be open time for the World Cup. 
John Banks adds there's more to the equation than just preparing for the Rugby World Cup. And Elizabeth Aitken-Rose, an urban planner at Auckland University, agrees. She says waterfront projects everywhere need several important qualities if they're to succeed. Lots and lots of people-focused activities, lots of very high-quality public realm, well-connected uh, back into the city, uh, places that and, and activities that actually attract lots of people, uh, not just particular crowds of, say, rugby fans. In developing Auckland's waterfront, city planners are looking not just at Cape Town and Vancouver, but at a place closer to home, Wellington. There, the waterfront has become a haven for strollers, cyclists, rollerbladers, Sunday markets and a host of other activities. But civic campaigners say these people came close to being crowded out of the waterfront by boutiques, latte joints and expensive apartments. Foremost among the critics was a journalist-turned-civic campaigner, Lindsay Shelton, of the lobby group Waterfront Watch. We learned over the years that successive city councils have always been much more enthusiastic about buildings than they have about open space. So when we've argued that the open spaces are owned by the people of Wellington as publicly owned land and should not be flogged off to private developers on any basis at all, that's an argument which has never held water because successive councils have believed development is good, buildings are good for the waterfront. Lindsay Shelton says those buildings would have privatised the waterfront, leaving little space for ordinary people to come and play. By campaigning hard, public access was secured. But Kerry Prendergast says the council always wanted lots of open space as well, and Mr Shelton's campaign increased the total amount only marginally. When the first designs went out to the public, I think open to the blue sky was about 76%. After the five-year moratorium that was called by my predecessor, the number rose to about 79% of public open space. So we're not talking about a huge gain by any particular group. We're still talking about the vast majority of the waterfront being open to the blue sky. These arguments have now largely been and gone. In their faces, quiet pride at the rather noisy enjoyment of people like these skateboarders here at Waitangi Park on Wellington's waterfront. Not far from them is a spot of grass big enough to kick a football around or throw a frisbee. There's flat ground here, big and expansive, planted in grass, not hemmed in by high-rise buildings. Trouble is, if there's no such thing as a free lunch, there's no such thing as a free picnic in the park either. Kerry Prendergast says scaling back building on the waterfront to create open space costs a lot of money. It had a huge financial impact because it was to be uh, self-funding the waterfront. When we made the changes, council had to put in an extra $15 million. What was debated by the council of the time in support of the public, they had to accept that a slight scaling back of the numbers of buildings would mean that more public money would need to go in. That public money set at $15 million for now will almost certainly go higher. That's because the recession is delaying building in the northern part of the waterfront, which was intended to offset the cost of open space in the southern part. Back in Auckland, turning Queen's Wharf from a vast and desolate platform into a throbbing party central is just one of the city's goals. John Duffy manages development for Auckland City Council and says urban authorities have worked hard right along the waterfront. We purchased Britomart, 
We purchased the ferry terminals with the other councils and Auckland Regional Holdings. We purchased the Viaduct Harbour public plaza areas and promenades, uh, Tawero Island, Hobson Wharf, West Haven, and we've bought some parks, one at Western End, which is called Harbour Bridge Park, and one at the other end, Teal Park. And we've also purchased 13 hectares on Wynyard Point. Now, the Auckland Regional Holdings and ARC between them have also purchased 18 hectares additional on Wynyard Point, and so it's put a huge amount of Auckland's waterfront into public ownership. This is a very large commitment of public money and energy, and is welcomed in many quarters. But the very scale of the enterprise might be one of its problems, according to a frequent critic of city administrators, Alex Sweeney. Auckland's famous for incrementally developing itself. Down here on the waterfront we call it wharf at a time development. So our call to government and to council and to the ARC is to get some real coordination around a plan that sees um, a much improved tourism offering rather than a ports offering down here. Auckland needs to tell its story, and it's a tourism story at one of the most beautiful harbour edge cities in the world. It needs a cohesive master plan there, and that's our, you know, that's, that's, that's where our heart is. Alex Sweeney, whose group Heart of the City is a niggling thorn in civic sides, adds the deadline imposed by the Rugby World Cup carries real dangers. There is quite a bit of this uh, Rugby World Cup-itis going on here. It seems that we can build a road and uh, all in time for the Rugby World Cup or a park here. You know, these things that need, these sorts of pieces of infrastructure need to be here for our children and their children and their children. So, you know, whereas we're supportive of Party Central there at Queen's Wharf, what we want to be making sure of is that we do something there that can be then transitioned into a legacy option for our city. Before the Rugby World Cup was even thought of, Auckland faced a deadline from another big international sporting occasion, the America's Cup. This produced the now famous Viaduct Basin, where cafes turn out a fine latte, but there's little room for kite flyers, dogs or children on tricycles. The planning academic Elizabeth Aitken-Rose is one who regrets the way this part of Auckland's waterfront has turned out. We're in the um, National Maritime Museum complex and we're looking at the harbour which is full of the collection of, of vintage boats that belong to the Maritime Museum. It seems very atmospheric. It is atmospheric and here you actually have uh, the, the great beauty of the waterfront in that we are connected to the sea. So has it any problems, any drawbacks, or do you think it's basically a very successful concept? Well, we are standing in the middle of a cafe area, so essentially you have to sit down and buy a coffee uh, to enjoy this view. It seems as though there's quite a lot of public space around, but actually when you look at it, it's very, very limited. Most of it uh, involves you having to buy something, so it's not really an area that, that is available for the public to easily connect with the sea, and yet this is a very beautiful bit of the waterfront. One feature of the Viaduct Basin development is the large number of apartments on it. These were built because it was thought desirable to have people actually living on the waterfront. It would make the place lively by day and by night and provide a deterrent to late-night crime. The trouble is, expensive waterside apartments attract rich people whose lifestyles can mean they're frequently away from the area. They also tend to be older, and this often means there are few children around. Standing on the wharves on a windswept day, Elizabeth Aitken-Rose explained how in one instance apartment dwellers took court action to try to close down public activity. 
White Mesh Plaza, which went in at the time the Viaduct Basin was redeveloped. Almost immediately, uh, the developer of the apartments behind took a case to the Environment Court to exclude public use uh, after certain hours because of the noise and because of the impact that the noise might have on the residents that were moving into what is a very plush area. And uh, this has continued to be a real problem. Uh, Auckland has a festival. It would like to use that space for festival activities. It can't because of all the caveats that have been placed on it. So it's not really a public square in the end. Uh, and it's, it's not used in the way that it could be used. It's a, a place where the public can gather and all sorts of interesting things can go on. The question of putting apartments on wharves has also exercised Wellington minds. The Mayor, Kerry Prendergast, says she's toured waterfronts in many parts of the world and is convinced building apartments on them is vital. People living on the waterfront are absolutely critical for any waterfront success. If you've got people there only during the day, either commercially or recreation-wise, then at night they can become dark, unsafe, windswept spaces. If you have people that are living there 24 hours a day, you can guarantee spaces are overlooked and they become safer. We have to make sure that there are apartments on the waterfront to make sure it is truly used 24 hours a day. But Lindsay Shelton says the Mayor's remarks do not stack up. The people who support the idea of buildings instead of public open spaces claim that buildings bring large number of occupants to the waterfront and that somehow these occupants will look out from their windows 24 hours a day and stop crime or antisocial behaviour. And they claim that the occupants will spend all their lives in the area where they live and will never leave. Both of these arguments are false. People who live in apartments or houses don't spend their entire lives looking out the window and leaping out to stop crime happening. And secondly, and even more seriously, the very expensive apartments which seem to predominate in waterfront developments are more and more obviously being occupied by absentee owners. So we are setting up ourselves for a most horrible situation on the waterfront, rows and rows of empty buildings. The question of apartments also affects one of the most ambitious chapters of the Auckland waterfront story. This is the so-called Wynyard Quarter, better known as Tank Farm. John Dalzell is a valuer-turned-project manager who's charged with turning a maze of grimy fuel tanks on the edge of the Waitemata Harbour into a buzzing urban village. This is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Auckland that reveals the working waterfront and opens up a large track of waterfront space to the Auckland public. John Dalzell says plenty of apartments will be there, but they won't dominate. The easiest way to imagine it is maybe a third, a third, a third. A third public open space and a third for marine and fishing and then a third mixed use which will comprise residential, commercial, retail and all the other community facilities required to establish a community there. And we're looking at, um, over a period of 25 years, a population of around five to 7,000 people uh, living and working uh, within the quarter. When the weather is poor, Wynyard Point catches a bit of the westerly. Greg McEwen is a former City Council Transport Committee chairman and braved the wind to make his point about the apartments planned for Tank Farm. 
In my opinion, uh, there have been some improvements with an increase in open space, but still there's too many apartments. You know, and a, a test for tank farms going to be a family from Melbourne coming to uh, to our city and going home and telling their friends that they should come to Auckland City because they've done a great thing on their tank farm. And uh, certainly, uh, a set of apartments isn't going to do that for our city. It's not going to actually have people going home to their cities and saying, "Go to Auckland and see the great thing they've done." The $211 million of public money going into Wynyard Quarter will be dwarfed by the 2 to $3 billion from the private sector. But John Dalzell says safeguards will be in place to protect the overall scheme. He says, for example, the residents of Swanky Apartments will not have the option of moving in, then objecting later to activities they don't like, such as the smell of a fishing fleet bringing in its catch. In terms of uh, separating uses which have some incompatibility. We have been quite discreet in where we've located the residential. There are safeguards so that residents coming into the area understand that they're part of a working waterfront and there's basically a no-complaints covenant um, that's set and embodied in the plan change. But I think there's other more practical things. Double glazing, I'm sure, will be an important design feature not only from a noise perspective but also in terms of achieving some of the sustainability targets that we have here. John Dalzell also unveils figures that indicate living in Wynyard Quarter will not be cheap. Your water edge apartments will currently sell between anything between $9,000 and $10,000 a square metre um, and that some of the inner apartments back into the, in the land mass of the quarter could sell from anywhere between uh, 3000 to 5000 a square metre. Affordable housing would be a different sort of price point to that and while we've been challenged to think about it we've yet to really develop any strategies mainly because the most of the residential uh, development is, is in, a, in later stages. Those figures put a 100 square metre apartment beside the water at around a million dollars. That sort of money will put open space in Auckland under greater threat. Back in Wellington, open space might have been preserved on top of the wharves, but there could be a hidden danger underneath the wharves. I'm gliding in kayaks underneath Wellington's Queen's Wharf with Ian Pike. He's chief executive of the commercial company charged with developing Wellington's waterfronts. Ian, can you describe the sort of problems we have here? Yeah, look, right now we're under the, uh, Queen's Wharf, out of tea. As you look around at these piles, uh, some of them are disappearing into, into the sea uh, in a fairly alarming way. Uh, there's about 1,000 piles under here, and approximately 33%, a third of them, are uh, in need of uh, repair over the next little while. Uh, probably half of that, again, 15%, are in need of repair immediately. The structure and the piles and the various joists and beams were originally constructed in, in about 1860, in the 1860s. The piles are made of at least three timbers. There's iron bark, totra, and black birch. The totra are the ones that have failed uh, the most. So at the moment we've got about 190 totra piles under here that are really in, in total need of replacement. Well, I'm looking at one now that's completely snapped in two. Yeah, look, there's just no, no load-bearing capacity f from that uh, pile, and, and there's dozens like that uh, under here. So, you know, that one has got, clearly got to be completely replaced. You can see it's a complete void, so you can see right through that pile. How much is fixing all this going to cost? 
Well, across the whole waterfront, uh, excluding the overseas terminal, we have estimated around about $10 million. It must be a very difficult job to do. Yes, yeah, extremely difficult. And there's more to the waterfront dispute in Wellington than just rotting piles. Open space might have been preserved around Waitangi Park at the southern end of the harbour, but buildings are planned for the northern end to offset that cost. And they have met an unexpected hiccup. A new report says those buildings face delays of one or two and possibly as many as five years. That's due to the recession, and it could impose a further charge on the ratepayer of $5.7 million over 10 years. They could also see some unusual fill-in measures, creation of a temporary ice skating rink or a campervan park. The prospect of a delay to major building in the waterfront's northern area pleases people like Pauline Swan, who succeeded Lindsay Shelton on Waterfront Watch, but she still doesn't think buildings should go up there at all. We don't want to see the CBD extended onto the waterfront. That area has got the largest workforce in Wellington who love to go down there. There's also, we've been told by commuters who come in from the Hutt Valley or Johnson or whatever by train and they love to walk to work along the waterfront. They don't want to be walking in shady lanes and windy passage aisles. Okay, now there is an element of cost because open space costs. If you don't build uh, apartment blocks or high-rise blocks that have a financial return, there's a cost that has to be met somewhere down the track, isn't there? Well, on that theory, perhaps we should put some apartments in the botanical gardens or on the town belt. Other issues remain open for Wellington. The idea of a Hilton Hotel on the waterfront looks certain to be revived, despite being vetoed in the Environment Court. On the other hand, the near-derelict overseas passenger terminal is now all but certain to be gentrified, the opposition to it having been fought to a standstill. While both Auckland and Wellington are pushing to have their old docks turned into vibrant parts of a living city, smaller places have dealt with their waterfronts in different ways. Napier has added a long coastal walkway to its generations-old marine parade, and it's proved hugely popular. New Plymouth went for the low-cost option of a boardwalk along its coast, similar to one on part of Wellington's Cook Strait coast. This sort of thing is applauded by Lindsay Shelton. It's interesting to compare the extravagance of some of the inner harbour waterfront development in Wellington with the much less extravagant development of the south coast waterfront. Um, the south coast waterfront, which is immensely popular for walking, riding, and skating and all the other things one does on the edge of the water, has been developed in a very modest way. Uh, whereas each time the council sets out to do something on the inner harbour, it seems to feel it must spend a huge amount of money. That's not really necessary. The trouble is, huge amounts of money have already been spent on buildings on or near inner-city waterfronts, presenting city planners with a fait accompli that can't be wished away. Auckland's Mayor John Banks objects strongly to the quality of some of these buildings and says their impact will only soften when better projects are built nearby. Well, there's been a lot of crass development, so we want to make sure that this is sound, sensible, reasonable and aesthetically pleasing. We want something pretty superb on this magnificent piece of gilt-edge, golden real estate. What's an example of what's been crass? I don't want to go into what's an example of being crashed, but you only have to wander around the waterfront to have a look at some of the flats that have been built to see that uh, it's pretty shonky and it's pretty 
post-Bay route. We want something inspirational here because Auckland is the aspirational capital of Aotearoa New Zealand. Alex Sweeney thinks this ambition can be achieved. Urban parks aren't just green parks. When we not, New Zealanders think of parks, they think of green space. <laughs> you know, when you build a park in an urban environment, it has buildings on it. They have um, large pieces of art, they have arts facilities, they have sculpture, they have night markets. If we go to Vancouver, a city we often compare ourselves with, Granville Island works every day, 24-7. It is the second largest uh, tourist attraction after Niagara Falls in Canada. It is a working waterfront activator. The disputes with the Auckland break down further. One such issue is whether Queen's Wharf should be a cruise ship terminal as well as a social or cultural centre. Critics say having customs and immigration facilities on the wharf would clash with the concept of party central. Another issue is the $76 million cost of Queen's Wharf alone, which concerns both the Mayor, John Banks, and the Chairman of the Auckland Regional Council, Mike Lee. In terms of costings, we're going to have to look at what comes through. Obviously, there's a certain envelope. But if there's a shortfall, then we'll tackle that then. Well, Mr Banks has indicated there is a $20 million or so shortfall. Well, it could be more, it could be less. Um, yeah. But, we'll look at that when yeah. it comes through. We're, we're not died in a ditch about the numbers at the moment. Auckland City Council has unanimously approved $57 million as a contribution. Uh, we don't know what the contribution will be in terms of the overall project because we don't know what we're going to get. When we know what we're going to get, then we're going to engage with other parties, including the private sector, as to how we develop this and how we fund it. The final shape of Auckland's waterfront will not be known for another decade and a half. Wellington's is also a work in progress which some of the parties involved think will never be finished, will always be open to further refinement. It was said of reconstruction and post-war London that the mad builder caused more architectural damage in the long run than the mad bomber had done. Buildings without a soul were put up, stamping out vibrant communities that were there before. New Zealand might never have been blitzed, but economic changes have obliterated old working patterns on the waterfront just as effectively. City authorities and waterfront watchdogs are now trying to achieve a new vision, and the challenge that involves is creating tension at every turn. That insight was written and presented by Eric Frickberg. Technical production was by Leanne Smith, and it was produced by Sue Ingram.